Hello, and welcome to Educational Triage, where we discuss issues in alternative education. This is a discussion about teaching by teachers, for teachers, and others who are interested in the alternative education world. We hope you find today's episode relevant, engaging, and useful. And if you do, please subscribe. I'm Tony Hunt, and I'm here to help guide you with the help of my friends, Christy and Philip. Today we have Courtney Lear, and Courtney is a National Board Certified ELA teacher and a dean at Pace High School in Wapata, Washington, on the Yakima Reservation. She's passionate about implementing actionable research-based strategies for students with CPTSD who struggle to regulate their emotions and motivate themselves. As a lifelong learner and a nerd with eight aces, she is inspired by the Huberman Lab podcast, and she's grateful for the tools which have transformed her classroom and her life for the better. And so come on in and join us while we meet this remarkable, remarkable person. And welcome back to Educational Triage. This is Tony Hunt, and I have the honor today of presenting you all with Courtney Lear. Hey, Courtney. Hello. And Courtney, you teach in the Wapato School District in Central Washington. Yes. Now, tell me about the Wapato School District, because it's primarily about, mm -hmm. is it 72% Latin, approximately, and 20% Native American? Um, I think that may be flipped. I would have to check out the OSPI report card because it is on the Yakima Native Reservation. Mm -hmm. So there is a high, high percentage of Native American students, uh, I mean, from many different tribes, not just Yakima. Um, and then we do have a large migrant population, um, a lot of farm workers. And so there is um, usually a pretty modest uh, Hispanic Latino population. Mm -hmm. uh, and usually the native population is greater, but then you have kids also that are two or more races. So it's it's kind of a pretty good mix. Okay. Okay. Because I remember growing up, um, I had some friends that were from Toppenish mm -hmm. and they were yeah. part of the tribe from there. Yes. Yeah. And this is another reason why you don't want to um, invest your knowledge in Wikipedia because I got, that's where I received my information from. Yeah. So if it's flipped <laughs> and well, I, I thought told my students not to use Wikipedia. So <laughs> yeah. And, and so I was looking at it and I was thinking that makes absolutely no sense because it's on the Yakima Re reservation. Is it not? Yes. And so why would there be more Latins there than there are um, natives? But you know, sometimes, yeah. sometimes communities, surprise you. So what is the poverty level there? Um, I'm pretty sure it is somewhere between 70 and 90% um, free and reduced lunch. Uh, I'm looking right now trying to find the numbers on the OSPI report card because I mean, if I were interviewing, I would know these off the top of my head, but over time. Um, right. Yeah, and especially when I do grant writing, it's important to have these information, uh, this information, but I haven't done as much yet for the district. So I, w I wish I could say yeah. that I knew. But if you, but I mean, you gave me an overall yeah. 
a picture of it. And so for our listeners, yes, this is this is more rural than it is urban. Very. And some of the conflicts that students have with poverty in a rural setting, sometimes they align with those of an urban setting, but many times they are quite different as well. I see so what you're saying, yeah. Paint us a picture mm-hmm. of the students and the issues that they seem to be having and who comes to your classroom at the alternative school there. Absolutely. Um, so Yakima is very interesting, the Yakima area, because I, I've i always thought this was a little bit on the nose, but you have Upper Valley and Lower Valley. Upper Valley is where you'll find West Valley, East Valley, and a lot of more of kind of the money. Um, you'll have more agricultural, but more so like the farmers, people who own their own farms. You'll have the kind of white collar business people, blue collar. There's tends to be more money, but also greater disparity in Upper Valley, Yakima. Lower Valley is the reservation. (laughs) And so in Lower Valley is where you find the Toppenish, Wapato, White Swan, where I started my career. And what's interesting is that because you have a lot of kiddos that will bounce around from district to district, there is a lot of... um, a lot of need for McKinney-Vento services. It's more common to hear where do you stay than where do you live. And that's another kind of reason for the bouncing around because you could have a kiddo who has one caregiver who abuses substances and another who doesn't. So one day they're in one district and then things get bad at home. So then they enroll in a nearby district. Well, you can imagine every time that happens, credits get lost in the shuffle and classes and assignments. And depending on where they end up, it could be you're responsible for every assignment we've had up until now to, you know, you should already know X, Y, and Z. So there's a lot of learning loss that will tend to happen when they bounce around among districts. There tend to be um, challenges with attachment, both with students and with adults, because in Lower Valley, especially, you get a lot and not I'm, I'm not saying that this is the standard by any means, but you tend to see somewhat what I kind of call revolving door teachers. They'll stay for a year or two to whether it's pad their resume, whether and I mean, it, it's tough in Lower Valley. I, I don't sugarcoat that at all. But I remember my first year, one student I, um, I was telling, I think, an eighth grader uh, at White Swan, um, what would have been Mount Adams Middle School. I can't wait to see you graduate. And she just looked at me very frankly and said, are you going to be here that long? And I was just like, oh, wow. And so when you add to that, I mean, and that's the thing is with Lower Valley, you also then have it compounded by generational poverty mm-hmm. and severe emotional trauma that is not just linked to the I mean, the the generational trauma that there's been for hundreds of years with boarding schools, lack of trust in, you know, the schools and the school systems and all of that. But then <laughs> I, I think back to, again, my, my first year, because I, I had so many rich lessons my first year. Um, one of them that I remember was a kiddo who didn't bring his book to school. And I asked where his book was. And he said it was at home. And I said, why didn't you put your book in your backpack? And he said, well, I don't have a backpack. I said, well, why don't you have a backpack? 
And he looks at me and goes, I live in poverty, Miss Lear. I was like, okay. I mean, I can't really, you know, and, and especially I think it's been, because uh, what I've realized, and, and I, I know I'm jumping ahead and I'll jump back, but what I realized is I truly grew up in a family that was a lot more like many of theirs than I ever wanted to realize and come to terms with till about the last couple of years. And I say that because one, one mistake that I think a lot of educators and people in general will make, myself included all the time, I'm growing every day, but especially when I was a beginning teacher was taking their behavior personally. And so there was one student who it, it was in the middle of winter, we were in the computer lab. And I remember I thought I saw him looking at something inappropriate on the screen, said, you know, hey, let's not be looking at that during class time. And this kid that I had a good rapport with cussed me up and down a blue streak, just walked out of the classroom. And I was just shell shocked, you know, 24 years old at the time, just, oh my God. And he came back a couple class periods later and just said, Miss Lear, I'm so sorry. You know, my, my mom died at, you know, last school year and my grandma raised me and my brother and she's been given a couple of months to live and I took it out on you and you did not deserve it. I'm so sorry. And it was truly at that moment at, at 24 years old that I just realized, oh my God, this isn't about me. This, this had nothing to do with me. Because of course you get into the, oh, this student and why aren't they taught respect and where are their parents and blah, blah, blah. You know, you get into that whole thing and it's mm -hmm. understandable. But it was really that interaction that I had to pull back. So, I mean, these, these are students who many of them have received so many different messages over the course of their education from you can do anything you set your mind to, to, and I've heard this verbatim, you know, you'll never get anywhere because you're from, X zip code. And this actually happened recently. Um, a YouTube personality that I watch talked about a teacher in, I forget what state, was it North Carolina? I can't remember. Um, but he exploded on his class and, you know, I, I, you're, you're going to be collecting welfare and it comes out of my paycheck. And there are so many, obviously different shades to, to that discussion. But the reality when you come back to it is that these are actual things that many of these students have heard from various adults in their lives. And so when you come to a new school and you're you're thinking, why don't they trust me? Why do they have chips on their shoulders? Why aren't they showing up to class? Why do they show up late? Why is there this disrespect? I've really had to put myself in their shoes and look at, you know, are they going home to a, an environment that is safe? Do they feel safe in their classroom? Do they feel safe with the school environment in general? How many schools have they been in? And what you truly start to see is that it is a far more complicated picture than we tend to realize when we're looking at it from the outside, especially, and I will make this caveat, and it sounds kind of funny, but if someone came from a middle-class household, especially Caucasian, but also just in general, if, if someone came from a household where their parents mirrored their emotions, they listened to them, they were empathetic, there is a point at which you truly may not be able to understand where these kids are coming from and how they are approaching this mindset because you don't understand what it's like to be in an environment where everything is your fault. Even if it's not your fault, it's your fault. That in the morning, the sky could be green. In the afternoon, it's yellow. At nighttime, it's purple. And it was never green or yellow. 
And when you're living in that environment, and then you go to a school where from classroom to classroom, none of the expectations seem to match or make sense. It's confusing. It's, you know, there, there are so many factors. And so what I truly wish also people would understand about these kiddos is, oh my gosh, they're resilient. I don't know how some of them make it to school in the morning every day with the attitude that they do, the positive attitude, knowing what some of them have going on and how hard they're trying. And especially when, you know, they've got all of these obstacles and they're doing the best they can with the tools they have, they just continue to impress me every day. And it just what is what truly makes me keep falling in love with my work. There are a couple of things that came up to me and the first, well, actually three. One is you, I was thinking, well, no wonder the dysphoric novels of the dystopian Mm -hmm. are so popular with students right now because there is so much of that happening. Secondly, it calls for us to think about what a nurturing parent would be and a nurturing parent with these students Mm -hmm. instead of an authoritarian figure because they're reacting to somebody who's telling them what to do. They hear enough of that. They don't have somebody who's there to make them feel welcome, wanted, needed, and valued. And the valued part and the heard part are the two most important components. Um, Feeling wanted, because you described atmospheres where they're not really wanted. 100%. Because they're just a punching bag, whether it's verbal, emotional, or maybe some physical. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, and potentially, I mean, and what's even more damaging is the cognitive dissonance. Um, so, so just to kind of, I guess, to format this, so cognitive dissonance, the brain can hold two different ideas at the same time, but with very great difficulty. So if we think to 1984, war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. That's cognitive dissonance. He loves me, so why does he yell at me and hit me? That's cognitive dissonance. So right. with these students, what's even more damaging is the you're loved and you're wanted, but the actions don't match the words. And that is another thing I truly wish that I could get out to educators is especially coming from a very similar household, you become hyper vigilant, above hyper vigilant to words not matching actions, even in seemingly innocent circumstances. And so if a child is told they are wanted, and then it's go to the office, you can't do that in my class, you can't do this, you have to do that, and it is authoritarian, it's frustrating for me Because on the one hand, you understand where teachers are coming from, especially so, and and I want to be very clear that a lot of this brain research, we have not had until the last five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. So what that means, unfortunately, especially with, with plasticity, how the brain changes more when it's younger, less easily, but still possible when it's older, teachers that have been teaching for 15, 20, 25 years, I really wish that they would would really know and remember that there is brand new research that is going to completely be different than what they may have originally been taught based on new solid neuroscience that we have now. 
And part of that is, yes, we want to prepare them for adulthood, but they are not adults. And so when I gave my second talk at the conference, I mean, it, it's kind of a little tongue in cheek. And I know that educators are understanding what I do as I'm doing it, but I play never have I ever. And I say, okay, put five fingers up. You know, we've been to college. If you've done this, put a finger down. And then I'll say things like, you know, never have I ever left a staff meeting to answer a phone call. Never have I ever graded during a district in service, worked on homework for another class, you know, during that. And so it's like trying to see if we are truly saying that we are preparing children for the real world, why then are we doing the same things that we're saying that they need to learn not to do, saying it's unacceptable for them? You can't text at a job. Really? They text in McDonald's when they're taking my, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's all about teaching them how to play to the ref or how to successfully engage with the world they have now. And unfortunately, this authoritarian, because I said so, it's heartbreaking to me because as a kid who grew up in one of those homes, as a kid who was in an alternative program, and as an adult who now teaches in an alternative school, it breaks my heart because if that is the classroom management strategy in an alternative setting, arguably in general, but especially in an alternative setting, you cannot be surprised when you get pushback, when you get a fight, because trying to say, because I said so, and then think, oh, they're not going to fight back. They're just going to do it. It's like saying, maybe if I wish real hard, the sun won't come up tomorrow. Like, no, that's not how it works. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, here's a question that I have. Um, mm -hmm. How would you say that the majority of people who you've worked with in alternative ed are they there willingly or were they placed there? Or do you believe that most of them need to have some training? What? This is such an interesting question. <laughs> because in um, my years, here's the reason why I ask is because I keep bumping into people who are in alternative ed and there is no way that I ever would have hired them for alternative ed, nor would I have kept them in alternative ed because they can't get past there's, I think that with some educators, there is a fear that if they show an iota, one iota of vulnerability, that the sky is going to cave in on them and they are going to be crushed. And the students will just pull out all kinds of weapons of mass destruction and just wipe them dry. Yeah, that is the truly great irony for me, because it's it's kind of like in alternative ed, I mean, it's, it's going to be a lot like just, I think, on a reservation or in an extremely high poverty environment in general, you're, to make a Stranger Things reference, you're teaching in the upside down. You're, mm -hmm. you're teaching in a place where, I mean, it's, it's so tough because as an adult now, because so as a child, I was never taught boundaries because I was only safe if I didn't have them or if I allowed people to violate them. And that is what a lot of our students are raised with. And so unfortunately, what students need is, yes, you need to have professional boundaries, but if you are not safely vulnerable to them, they are not going to be vulnerable with you. And that's what I really dislike about this one size fits all. Like I call it the separation of school and home. Like it's kind of like church and state. And when it comes to alternative ed and high poverty ed, 
I severely disagree because when you don't have counseling staff, because thanks to our beautiful prototypical funding model, I think we're funded for what, 0.4 of a counselor. So I, I lovingly ask our counselor, you know, hey, Stacy, which, which third of you do we get today? You know, but, you know, we've, there are teachers who, it, it again, so, so there's something in communication called the closeness communication bias. And what it means is the better you think you know someone because you've known them for a long time or been in a community a long time, the irony is the less you tend to actually know them. Um, you just think that you do. So it, it goes along also with the, um, oh gosh, not, not cognitive, just the Dunning-Kruger effect where people know more right. than they think they do or they underestimate what they don't know. No, they think, they think they know more than they actually do and they pretend that they know and they're right. unwilling to say. Precisely. And so kind of to answer your question, I think that there are some staff who really enjoy it and that's why they've been there so long, but they wonder why they have not had greater successes and whether that's, you know, and I think a lot of that also, especially I, I noticed this for very, very new teachers and seasoned veteran teachers is especially, and, and I know I'm going to keep beating this like a drum, but especially if you didn't come from a more dysfunctional household, it's easier to confuse relationships with compliance. There are teachers who think because they're quiet and doing what I ask, I have a relationship with them. That is not the case. And so I think that there are teachers who wind up in alternative ed because maybe there's they don't think they would have success elsewhere or they have not found success in traditional environments because there's a lot more politics, bigger schools, more teachers. Alternative ed, you have usually maybe one teacher per subject. Um, I think that it's very, very new teachers that oftentimes, especially in this climate, maybe they have a hard time finding jobs in in areas where maybe they would want to go like you know the the west side of washington seattle area perhaps mm -hmm. so they end up you know in an alternative there are some like me that see alternative ed and they're like there that one that's where i want to be i want to be with those kids and i think that there is a very interesting mix of like, and especially for the seasoned veteran teachers, what I've noticed is that that closeness communication bias, I've lived next to in or around this community for 20 years. So I know what these students are going through. And man, if they would just stop staying up so late on their video games, if they would just get off Snapchat, if they would just get off these electronics, then we could get some real learning done not realizing that that is the exact wrong approach if they want to get results. It is an approach. It will get results. But is it the ones that they want? Potentially not. And then I think the tendency is to turn it back on the kids. What's wrong with them? Quote, quote. Why aren't they doing X, Y, and Z? Why can't they do this? Well, if they really cared, they would be here on time. All those assumptions. Um, there's another aspect to that. And that is when I am overloaded, sometimes I will sit down and I will play solitaire. <laughs> and, you know, or I'll do something else. And that's why I'm doing that. It's because I have, it. it's maybe not with a complete purpose, 
but it's something that I can control. And it's a universe that I can mm -hmm. control. I know what the rules are. Everything is steadfast. Yep. And I can get lost and it helps me erase my brain. Now, in your presentation on, and for our audience, we did meet at the Walla Washington Alternative Learning Association Conference in Spokane this year. And you mentioned the fact that REM sleep mm -hmm. is where the brain gets to erase it. And the kids don't really get that for one reason or another. Sometimes it is because they're kept up very late. Sometimes they're having to take care of mom and dad problems or relative problems or the neighbor's problems yes. or something else because there is mayhem at home. And they're not going to talk to you about it unless they absolutely trust you. And by saying, you need to trust me, you know what? Once a person tells me, what's the matter? You don't trust me? Mm -hmm. Heck no, I do not trust you. If you're going to ask me that question, there is no way I'm ever going to trust you. Yeah. So you have to remember that these kids are, I'm going to say, damaged to the point where they don't trust anybody. And you have really got to work hard in order to get there. And you can't be showing the work. Well, and, and, and I'm going to kind of, especially the, the English teacher part of me, there, mm -hmm. there's a term that I heard in there and, and I don't necessarily, in, in terms of kind of the whole, the, the damaged piece, the way that I really see it is, and, and that's not because for a long time in my own, whether it's therapy and talking to students, I remember I used to say like, I'm broken, I'm broken. And the irony of that is that as I tell my students, your brain is a computer made of meat. And the irony of how you're responding is that for how you were programmed, you're performing perfectly. Right. Because from a survival strategy, not being able to trust is what has gotten you this far. And so by not being able to engage in these things that are pro-social, by actually keeping to yourself, not trusting teachers, closing off, pushing people away, which goes to attachment styles, which I'll is a whole other thing. There's a phenomenal book called Emotional Poverty in the Classroom. Mm -hmm. I'm doing a book study on it and I'm trying to see the name of the author. I can't. Um, let me actually I grab it. It's, uh, here we go. Uh, Emotional Poverty in All Demographics. There we go. By Ruby K. Payne, P-A-Y-N-E. Oh, Ruby Payne, about, yeah. Yes, it talks about attachment styles for educators and for students. And I guess the irony is that for anxiously attached students, and we can go into attachment styles, for some students, they will trust others. You've alienated yourself from them for mm -hmm. who knows how long till they open back up. And it brings into um, a really important focus on sleep where that's the thing is not only does REM sleep allow them to kind of reprocess those memories and separate them from emotion and kind of it, it also sleep is required in REM sleep for skill learning because your brain kind of plays a skill backwards and then forwards again so like so a lot goes into that but it's also that dopamine is the molecule in the brain responsible for not only wanting and craving but it turns into adrenaline in the bloodstream, L-dopa, um, which turn, becomes, you know, mm -hmm. dopamine and adrenaline, which means that if students need sleep to recharge their brains, we cannot control the extent to which they get sleep or why they do or don't get it. It could be trauma related, could be family related, but if they don't get the sleep to replenish that dopamine, then basically I think of it as a car with no gas in the tank 
and you're asking it to get you to work and then you get mad at the car for not moving. It's like the car doesn't have gas. What do you want it to do? So this morning when I was listening to one of his older podcasts and he was saying that attention, uh, Dr. Huberman was saying that attention is required for learning, that um, focus and alertness are required for learning. And um, I think it's exteroception or focus on the outside. I could be confusing those, but essentially if a student is not awake, they can't learn. And if it's made to be their fault, then now they're resentful and they're not going to learn even more. And it's just like, I think about, you know, teachers and how inadvertently without meaning to, they can create the breeding grounds for classroom management challenges, because he talks about think kindergartners, you know, elementary school. If you tell a five-year-old, we might have extra recess. If you guys all read, you know, 10 pages, or if you, you know, line up exactly straight, however, whatever it is, and then say someone doesn't line up, their brains don't hear, we might do this. They hear, hear. we'll do it. So then if for some reason that doesn't happen and the kids flip out, especially if they're from these high trauma kind of families, well, then you've created your own classroom management issue by not understanding how that brain chemistry works. Because it's called reward prediction error, where if we went to lunch and I said, man, the pizza at this place is amazing, and you really weren't impressed, you're going to be more disappointed than if I hadn't said anything at all, because the dopamine is up expecting and excited for this thing. And then that doesn't happen. And so it crashes and it's really dramatic, especially with children and students. And we have to remember that these 14, 15, 16, 17 through 20 year olds, emotionally, maybe four or five, six year olds. Well, true. I mean, it's the same thing as with an addict because they can't emotionally grow. And so they stay at the point that they were when they first started drinking or using or whatever. But the you brought up a great point, which is you never promise anything that mm-hmm. you cannot pot that you don't have a hundred percent ability to follow through with. Yeah. So what I learned to do with my students was I would say something along the lines of I'm going to see whether or not it might be possible for us to do something. And they'd say, what? And I would say, I'm not going to tell you because that's not fair to you, but I'm trying to find something special for us to be able to do. Mm-hmm. And then they would check back. Are we going to be able to do it? I don't know yet. I don't know yet. What is it that we're going to do? And so if if it falls through, they still have this in anticipation, this expectation that something special is going to happen. Mm-hmm. So then if I have to go out and buy an ice cream cake, because I used to work in residential treatment. If I had to go out and buy ice cream cake and bring it into them, if I had to do something really big for them and pay for it out of my own pocket, I did it because they needed that because there were things that they did that blew my mind and I didn't ask them to do it, but they lived up, they surpassed expectations, not because I demanded that they pass those expectations, but because they really wanted to perform. And many of them had never done that before. But I used to tell them, you know, you're like my little kids. And I just want to be proud of you. And every day I brag about you. And I tell people about even the little things that you do. 
And so that became an expectation. Did you brag about us today? And it's like, yeah, yeah I did. So that kind of, you know, just pumping them up. And for some students, they've never heard anybody say that they were proud of them. Yeah. And that's a huge, that, that can be absolutely huge. Here's something that I wanted to ask you earlier, and I'm going to throw this out there right now. Because you were talking about the students and McKinney-Vento and bouncing around district to district, school to school. Is this an equity issue? Completely. 100%. (laughs) And why, well, why isn't it being addressed at the state level among districts? (laughs) I'm (laughs) sorry. (laughs) I know, I know. But I don't think that, I don't think that Washington State is alone in this. I think Oregon State is. I work in a district where they do so much, uh, what do we call that? Um, they do so much posturing that by saying that they're doing things and then they do tiny little things, but their actions don't match their words. And Yeah. And yeah. so my, uh, my rather elegant solution that I would love to challenge our state representatives to, because I've actually thought a lot about this, Um, What I would love to see in a perfect world is a game show. And uh, this game (laughs) show would take place shortly before any kind of education legislation were passed. And it would be called, So You Think You Can Teach. And you (laughs) you would give these state legislators a week in a Title I district with just the regular substitute plans that a teacher would leave for a substitute on an average day, um, they would only have access to the same resources that a substitute would have. And they would have to perform, their, their students would have to perform in some kind of high stakes test at the end of that week. And after that week, then they could go into the chamber and cast their vote, but they'd have to sit through PLCs. They'd have to sit through a parent meeting, maybe go to a sports game. Because really, I think so much of the inequities, because for me, equity is the hill that I will die on always and forever. It's it's truly fair is not equal. And I think right. that that is the, the biggest problem that we see is that, and that was kind of the, the legacy of no child left behind. How do we get all these kids on the same page? How do we get all them? You can't because they're different. And by trying to homogenize, you're erasing those differences, which are their strengths. And so when it comes to equity, it's that we don't see as obstacles or possibilities. So I guess the, to, to back up, the way that I describe it is imagine a congenitally blind parent trying to teach their congenitally blind child to paint by numbers accurately. If you're not aware that something is a possibility and you have no idea, how do you describe the color blue to someone who's blind? How do you describe a soprano to someone who's deaf? And obviously you can, I'm not saying you're, but the the point that I'm making is for some of these, these teachers, it's just like me. Well, why don't you have a backpack? You know, or well, this mm-hmm. kid. I mean, I I know the family, and they have nothing. It's like really because I'm shocked sometimes that people didn't call you know CPS growing up in various situations that I saw or were a part of. People are very good at looking like everything's fine on the surface, and unfortunately, there's a there's a quote that I remember from a couple years ago, a friend that I had, and it's it's stuck with me. And I've done a lot of personal growth. I've been on a quite a journey, but a journey to change. And this friend said, and this is true of our students, 
you know, Courtney, one of the scariest things about being your friend is if I can tell something's wrong, it's already too late. And that's the truth for so many of these kids is that if you can tell something's wrong, it's, it's already past the point of no return because these kids, oh, I'm fine. No, everything's fine at home. I'm fine. Everything's great. And yet, you know, what you said struck me about the students not having people tell them they're proud of them. There's one girl who I taught her older brother and um, recently um, it, it was horrific. His, the mother of his child and my students, one of her best friends was killed tragically in a car accident on the res, which happens a lot. I've over the course of eight years, I think I've lost four or five students to various reasons and it never gets easier. But for her, she, she was looking really sad and withdrawn and quiet in class one day. And one thing that I recommend to educators kind of going into some actionable tools is anytime you have a concern, whether it's social, emotional learning or you always want to do this before a behavior gets to like the student getting in trouble, like when they're on the upswing, because I mean, generally, hopefully you can tell, I always go up to a student and the first thing I say is, you're not in trouble. Can you come outside and talk with me for a second, please? You have to preface it with you're not in trouble because my principal and I now have a code where he gives me a, a ver an actual thumbs up or a thumbs up in text because when he would text me and say, hey, I need to talk to you later, my blood pressure sky high until right. I talked to him until I was like, okay, th this is not working. Can we come up with a code so I know I'm not in trouble? <laughs> like <laughs> same thing with students. And I, I took this girl outside and talked to her and she just started crying. And she said, she was the only person who told me that, and you know, regardless of their perception, it's real to her in that moment. She was the only person who told me she was proud of me for going to school. And, and for me, it goes back to those chronic absentee kids that when we had online learning, there would be complaining about, well, they sign on in the last five minutes of the Zoom and why do they even show up to class if they're X, Y, or Z? And I go the complete 180 route, which is I am overexcited, obnoxiously. They signed in. Oh my, <laughs> hey, oh my gosh, I'm so proud of you. And of course, you think these hardened high school students, you know, some of them from gang families would be like, mm -hmm. whatever. But after a while, they really appreciate it. And I don't have classroom management problems. And, and this isn't to say that I'm, you know, amazing and incredible. It's like I came from such a chaotic environment myself that before I jump to assumptions, and this has taken, oh my gosh, so much growth on my part and therapy and, you know, just working on myself over the past year and a half. But so much of it is taking myself out of the situation and trying to figure out, okay, like, okay, so perfect example, there was a student that was had surly, very just mean, angry look on his face that normally I have a really good rapport with. And another teacher very, you know, he well intentioned, had been saying to the student, hey, I don't see you smile. Why aren't you smiling? And, you know, that's kind of, you know, hit or miss. Well, I asked the student in my classroom, I was like, hey, you know, what, what's going on? Are you all right? And just very quietly under his breath, you know, just I'm going through withdrawal. And I was like, okay, well, you know, if you don't want to participate today, I understand, you know, do you want to, what do you want to do? Give them options, give them control. Mm -hmm. So they have some semblance of it. And then I was able to go aside to my colleague, you know, the next time very well intentioned, Hey, I don't see you smiling. Uh, hey, just, just so you know, this student's kind of going through some 
some, you know, dependency stuff, some personal stuff. They're really not feeling well. Oh my gosh, I had no idea. Exactly. Because you don't ask, you don't talk. And sometimes they might not tell you or they might not tell you the truth. But I think so many teachers, so so this study like changed my life. And I, I'm, I, I'm writing a book actually, and I include it in the book. Um, but this one study where... Um, if you're, if you and your listeners, hopefully you're familiar with the ACEs study, 1994, mm-hmm. the yes, right. average experiences. So this is kind of an offshoot where researchers showed gr- different groups of people. Some had been exposed and I'm paraphrasing. Some had been exposed to traumas over the course of their lives. Others had not. And when I was growing up, unfortunately, there would be times where it would be, get that look off your face, get this tone out of your voice. And I would be monotone, blank face, nothing. And um, what they did was they showed the, the participants a spectrum of faces from neutral to angry. And what changed my life truly was that, that people that had been through severe traumas time and time again, classified neutral faces as angry, meaning they literally saw expressions in people's faces that were not there. So when students are reacting, because I mean, that's what I love in, in a doc, my favorite documentary, Paper Tigers, um, he said, one of the teachers says, you have to be willing to believe, and this is a very bitter pill for educators to swallow, that their behavior may not be in their control. And I, I hammer on this in, in my, my lectures, my PD. Mm-hmm. This does not mean don't hold them accountable. This does not mean they're not responsible. This does not mean there are no consequences. It means we have to stop believing that they're doing it on purpose or that they have a choice. Because can they have a choice in the future? Absolutely, when they learn the building blocks, when they learn emotional regulations, there are so many steps. Otherwise, you're basically talking to a third grader and saying, why can't you do nuclear physics? What's wrong with you? Are you kidding me? Well, you're looking at, well, you're coming from a white middle class normalization and they don't have that. It's, I remember I asked a student who wasn't mine, but he was visiting my class one day and I said, how do you feel today? And he said, do you really want to know how I feel? And I said, yeah, I really do. He just went off. He said, I am PO'd. He didn't hold back on any of his language. He said, my life is effed up. I am just, and he just took off. And after he left, I looked at somebody and I said, what's his story? And they told me that basically he had been, he had been sexually abused Mm -hmm. by a family member and, but not a family member by a, by a step parent. Mm -hmm. And finally one night he couldn't take it because it had gotten so violent that he lost his mind and he shot the guy and killed him. And the mother was so furious that after the, they had cremated his stepfather Mm -hmm. that she put him, that she put the ashes in bed with him so that when he woke up, he would wake up right next to that. And I mean, how do you, okay, first of all, your mother is not there to help you. And believe me, I have so many kids whose mothers have been sort of almost for physical abuse, cheering Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. the perpetrators on. And so, and they wonder why the kids are so screwed up. Thanks to their own attachment issues. Yeah. Right. And, and their anger issues. And then this kid, I mean, he was just, he was finally able to get some, some help, but, but by that time he was almost an adult. And I've known other students who were so physically beaten so badly that one of them is now serving a life sentence for murder. Yeah. And he has spent most of his career since the last time I saw him, which was when he was about 16, 15 or 16, he has spent almost every year since then in violent offenders. And I was speaking to a cop who knew the family and I was speaking to him and he said that was one of the most violent households he had ever visited in that section of Portland. He yeah. said it was just so bad. Yeah. So we can't expect everybody to be the perfect person that you want them to be. And you can't tell them to pull them up by their bootstraps. You can't expect them to have all the necessary tools that we have. Well, and that's kind of the, the sad assumption is that many, and, and that's why it, it's funny as I'm older and I'm going through my growth because now I, I feel almost in a way privileged, but in a different way than it's normally used by kind of mm -hmm. the, the curse of the type of household that I grew up in, because I understand more than I would otherwise as a white educator. I very painfully understand with kind of the extent of the trauma that I endured and the nature of it. And I remember there was a student kind of similar situation where I was pulled out of class um, years ago and the student had been getting sexually abused by her grandfather. And when the news came out, grandfather went up into the mountains and committed suicide and the entire family blamed her. Mm -hmm. And so you see a lot of that circling the wagons and a lot of these, you know, these, these white educators, I remember there was, you know, distress teaching in and, and the students were swearing in class. There was a lot of, you know, disrespect and a teacher in a staff meeting said, you know, well, why doesn't someone, you know, call these parents, call their parents, and I couldn't help myself. Maybe I could, but I started laughing. And I said, for some of these kids, what parents? Are you talking yeah. about the parent that's working three jobs? Are you talking about mm -hmm. the older sibling that's watching their four other siblings? Are you talking about the ones that are, I mean, where are they supposed to get this love and support? And, you know, it's just, it's, it's sad for me because when, and, and it sounds sad and funny to say it this way, but if you came from a family where you were truly loved, not, and this is tough for me because there's families that were truly secure, which I call unicorns because I don't think there are as many of them as people think exist. There also are the, I had a happy childhood kind of people that I tend really not to believe when I hear that because it usually doesn't take a mm -hmm. lot of digging to like, so which which sibling were you in the lineup? Oh, I was younger. So did your older sibling have the same experience with your parents? Well, I mean, no, that they have a different relationship. And I mean, well, they don't they don't talk to my parents as much and they don't visit them and, and you know they don't get along and I don't know what their problem is, but they're older, so you don't know what the dynamic was mm -hmm. before you were born or how that changed. So it's possible that they either could have been a golden child and become escape, and then that gets into all sorts of family roles. But if you have never lived in that family environment, it is unfathomable to you because as a like, you know, good quote, quote, parent or, you know, secure parent, you don't want to believe that there are parents who exist that don't love their children. 
You don't want to believe that there are parents who are completely incapable of providing any love and support who go out of their way to sabotage their children's efforts, whether or not they're aware of what they're doing, unless you have been in that atmosphere. And for me, that's the trouble with teaching with white educators, even being a white person and why I get so frustrated because I, it's a very thin line and a very fine balance on a knife point to keep where you're trying to hold them accountable while also not assuming that they know or understand what they're doing. And so, you know, I see with one of your questions, you know, what are some obstacles that you face? There's a lack of knowledge of what rights students have and different ways to manage behavior in the classroom. There are classroom management strategies that some teachers might see as, you know, coddling, which may go back very deep down with a lot of self-reflection to this kind of bitter, they're not going to have it better than I did mentality, you know, Mm -hmm. or this is how it was when I was in school. And it's tough because when you have teachers that are teaching the same way and the same thing for 20, 25 years, brains are not the same. No. Like the the chemicals in the brain that used to calm down my parents and grandparents' generation amp up me and the generations that came after me because of just the evolution of the brain, throw in trauma, throw in the way that different centers of the brain develop. And you cannot teach the same way that you have been the general you for 20 some years. It's just not going to be effective. Well, you have to look at every day as a new adventure because you don't know what the path is going to bring you. For example, I've had students come in and they have, I had one student and he came to me and he said, I kind of got my girlfriend pregnant. And I said, well, okay, what are you going to do about it? And he said, well, he said, well, she's really mad at me and she doesn't want me to do anything. But I, he said, it's my job to take care of her and to take care of the baby. And I said, is there a baby already? And he said, no, but I need to pay for all of her medical and everything. And he said, that's my responsibility as a man. And I said, okay, how are you going to do that? Well, he started working three jobs and then he would get off his shift and he would come to my classroom mm-hmm. And he would lie down on the couch because at that time I had a couch in my classroom and he would just sleep. And then I would wake him up 20 minutes before his math class. And then I would say, okay, you have math now. And he'd say, okay, I don't understand this stuff in math. And we would sit down and I would get him going in these algebra one workbooks. Yeah. And he said, and one day he just started giggling. And I said, what's so funny? He said, this is so easy. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I've never understood it before. And he started doing that. But he finally had to drop out and we put him into another program where he could finish high school Mm -hmm. because he couldn't continue this mad race of three jobs after a full day of school and no sleep. And uh, finally, one day he came to me and he said, okay, I've saved up $25,000. I said, are you kidding me? Yeah. How old are you? And he said, 18. And mm-hmm. I said, that's amazing. I said, how much of that goes to the, and he said, oh, that's after paying for all the stuff wow. and everything. And he said, we're going to get our own place and da, da, da. I said, are you going to buy a house? Cause at that time that would have made a good down payment on a house. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, 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 no. I want to get, 
I, I need to make more money than that. And I said, okay, but I need you to finish high school because that's going to open more doors for you. And right. he's done incredibly well for himself. But you don't always get students who are going to be able to see through all of that because most of them are going to say, okay, I need to drop out and I need to get a job at McDonald's and they can't see past that. Well, and that's, I mean, they, students that are raised in those environments, they're in survival mode. They think day to day. They do not have the right. capacity to think beyond that because that's not their mode of survival. And I guess that's another thing that I really wish that administrators and teachers would understand is to me, there's there's kind of a really cruel irony in that there's there's a form that I have to fill out every so often asking whether we are on pace with the high school. And the irony to me is if it's an alternative program, why should we be on pace with the high school? I'm not spe saying spend like five weeks on capitalization, but at the same token, like with my students, like I, I'm really blessed to have a truly amazing English PLC at the high school. And there's kind of some freedom within the pacing guides that we have, mm -hmm. because right now I'm doing the hate you give with our students. And, you know, there are things that I've been able to, to teach to my students. My gosh, we've, we've talked about neuroscience and this is with alternative ed, high poverty, you know, absentee students. Um, I've had students that have, that were doing debates right now, students that have um, just written college level, because I, I taught college in the classroom for five or six years. And I taught at Central Washington when I was getting my first master's. So I have college teaching experience. And I'm giving these kiddos activities that I've done with college students. And I think that so much of the assumption is, oh, well, they're not capable because why else would they be here? So we need to give them these tiny basic building blocks when they are capable of so much more and they're limited ironically by their environment and the attitudes of some of the people in those environments. And so even like in our classrooms, you know, there's a, you know, I'm maybe kind of a rebel. Um, there are things, in, I run my classroom a little differently. And so in the beginning of the school year, semester, et cetera, I first tell my students, I always get Costco pallets of water and I get Costco snacks and I leave them in my desk and I say, if you're hungry, get a snack. I ask that you please clean up after yourself. If you're thirsty, grab a water bottle. I have students asking all day. And then I'm very careful to say, if I hear from any other teacher that you are eating in their classroom and your excuse is, but we get to do it in Ms. Lear's room, snacks for everyone stop immediately. I've never had a problem with it. I've never, mm -hmm. and I've had staff complain, well, if they're eating in other classrooms, if they're using their phone, because of the neuroscience, I give my students after every day, they have eight minutes of silent reading. It was 10, but I lowered it a little bit. Then they have a two minute cell phone break. And I say, you've got two minutes to do what you need to do on your phone. Put it away. I'm going to put my phone away. You can watch me do it. If I say that you can have it out or, you know, you can listen to music. And what I'm very conscious about, because again, at the age of 30, I learned what boundaries were and started learning how to set them, which is humiliating in a sense, especially as an adult. But then you realize, well, these kids sure as heck then don't know what they are. And so I don't teach expectations because especially growing up in one of these households, you're never good enough. You're either too much or you're not enough. And you're always falling short of expectations. I hate that word. I understand it, but I hate it. With these students, I teach boundaries. All right, guys, 
you're going to leave your phones away and keep earbuds out while I'm, you know, while we're having a class discussion, because why? And we talk about it. I say, okay, where are appropriate places to swear? Where are appropriate places to listen to your earbuds? And we talk about that because when they say no swearing ever, baloney, I hear people swear in staff meetings. Like that's not fair. <laughs> and so instead in my classroom, I've, I've either never had a fight about earbuds or if I do have a fight about earbuds, you're not in trouble. Let's chat outside. And 10 times out of 10, it has nothing to do with earbuds. Same thing with cell phones. If I see it out of their bag, so like my step process for phones that I've, again, I've never had a fight with a student over electronics this year. And I tell them all the first time I'm going to ask you to put it away in your backpack. The second time I see it out, outside of cell phone time, it'll go on my desk until the end of class. And the third time it'll go to the office. Usually it never goes to the office. And by then it's not about the phone, but even so, like kids are kids. They're going to check their phones because it is an addiction. They cannot control it. And if you have the no cell phones ever, you're setting yourselves up for a battle where you're in right. the arena and you're facing the lions and that's your fault, you know? Right. And see, we have 90 minute periods and our students are working independently Yep. because everything has to be online because again, equity, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that just doesn't work for every student. No. But what we do is if a student's constantly checking their phone, then we take it away and we tell them where it is. And then if they can work for 20 to 30 minutes, then they can have their phone back and they can check it, but they have to put it back mm -hmm. in the sleeve because we have a big hanging thing on the door that mm -hmm. we got from the math department. It's for calculators. Mm -hmm. but we just put the phones in there and that way they know where it is and it's not right there. So that way they can focus on their work, but then they can take like a five, 10 minute break and they can be on their phone. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Because they need to have that break there. There's just something that they need. Um, and sometimes I will allow a student to take a nap mm -hmm. yeah. in class. And there are people that I work with who've been in alternative education for at least 15 years. Mm -hmm. who look at me and say, you're going to let that kid nap here? They should go home. And it's like, no, 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 no. They can't go. Well, they can't do it here. And it's like, mm -hmm. uh, my class, my rules. Yes, they can. And then it's another, I, I fight more with them over what is right by the student rather than what should be. Well, cause that's the question is really who is the education for? Is it for right. the student or the teacher? Cause it's like, you know, cause I have my admin credentials. My second master's is in school administration. My first master's is in English um, and I'm national board certified. And so what I would love to do just because I, I you know, I, I try to keep it kind of tongue in cheek, but what I wish I could do, even though I know it'll never happen is I would love to do a teacher in service where they are required to get no more than three to four hours of sleep the night before. And then for eight hours straight, they are forced to write lesson plans in a room with 20 other educators where they cannot listen to earbuds. And by the end of the day, they have to turn in two weeks worth or a month's worth of lesson plans and they can't have snacks. They can't have their phones. 
and it's it's truly I do not think that teachers can empathize. I think that they and not all teachers. I'm saying teachers who have right. kind of this viewpoint. They don't understand because they look through their own lens and they think, well, I've got a couple of kids and I don't get a lot of rest and I still have. Okay, first of all, your prefrontal cortex is developed. It's not a fair fight. You're already comparing apples to oranges. Second of all, school is different from when you were educated and Mm -hmm. from when I personally was educated. You cannot continue educating students in that environment because it's not fair, but it's also that if we truly want to, it's like we we almost have to choose, do we want differentiation and equity mm-hmm. or do we want equality and to churn out a bunch of cardboard boxes? Because if education is a business, then shoot, let's churn out cardboard boxes all day. These kids don't have feelings. They don't have thoughts. They, don't, they go home to exactly the same environment. They have loving parents, right? That's the only thing to me that would make these assumptions valid and accurate. School isn't a place of, of, you know, sleeping. It's a place of learning. Well, what if they don't feel safe sleeping at home, but they're sleeping in your classroom because they feel safe there? Then isn't it a good thing that, again, we're not saying sleep for six hours. We're saying set boundaries. Here's your 20 minute nap. Are you more well rested now? Great. Then you're prepared to learn. In the scheme of that child's life, what has that 20-minute nap cost them, you know? And what does it cost you? And could you negotiate that with them, too? If I let you sleep today, what mm-hmm. what is it that you can do, except you have to make you you have to be very very careful with the negotiation because you mm-hmm. cannot set that child up for failure because yeah. if they don't make it it's like here i will loan you 2 dollars mm-hmm. no i will give you 2 dollars and yeah. here's why because if you loan it to them and you tell them they mm-hmm. say i will pay you back tomorrow yeah. now they have an unreasonable expectation because they might not be able to do that mm-hmm. and then they feel very strange about you Yeah. And so, I mean, perfect example today that, like I said, I'm teaching juniors and seniors the hate you give. And two of the seniors in that class are also in a creative writing class with me because I have many students in multiple Mm -hmm. periods. And one of them in particular, I know for a fact is in an abusive relationship. The other one I know for a fact is McKinney Vento has, you know, homelessness and a lot of their own toxic stuff going on. Um, Both of them, like one, especially it can be very spirited with other teachers, always on her phone, very frequently. And, and sometimes we go round and round about it. But I've developed a really good rapport with her over the years from, you know, her being vulnerable and, you know, me sharing things and insight. And so today they both really were just not having it in creative writing. We were writing, um, I think, free verse poems or, or list poems and they had a poetry quiz. And they finished their quiz, but clearly did not try because both of these girls got like six and 13 points out of 40. And I was just like, this is ridiculous. Miss Lear, can we watch the rest of the movie? Because we had started watching the first part in first period because that was where we'd read to up until then. And uh, I said, you know, I don't think so. You know, we've got Monday. We're going to watch it then. And one of them said, well, I'm not going to be here Monday. And so in my mind, it's 
I can argue with these students. I can force the curriculum. I can fight with both of them about their cell phones while they completely ignore the lesson and do whatever they want on their Chromebooks and potentially disrupt, disrupt or distract other students. And I can take it as a personal affront against my teaching. How dare you not want to do this lesson? How dare you not engage in my quiz? I do this for you. And instead I said, you know what? I'll make you a deal. If you guys retake this quiz and you actually try and you get above 30 points on this quiz, which I know you are both capable of since it's an open note quiz, because and that's a whole other thing with brain research regardless. If you guys get over 30 points, I will put on this movie on, on this laptop over in the corner of the room. You guys can watch it quietly since you're not going to be here on Monday and everyone else can do their work. And that's exactly what happened. They got 38 and 40 points respectively. They sat and watched the movie, which gives them more way to visualize what we're reading, mm -hmm. and even like contribute on, you know, Tuesday or whenever they're back. And the rest of the class was doing their poems, none the wiser. Why don't they get to watch a movie? I heard none of that. Why do they get to do this? I heard none of that. And it's like, what did it hurt by allowing these girls, rather than fighting back against me and being on their phones and hammering mm -hmm. the curriculum, what would that have done? But then also throw off their attitude in their other four classes after me for their other teachers. And it's thinking about that chain, chain effect and not taking it personally. And I, I understand especially having done that for five or six years of my career, because this has been a slow change. I've evolved over time. I've learned more. But once you really let those things go, it's like, who are you really doing this for? Because if you have tenure, unless they walk in on you being inappropriate with a student or slapping a student or verbally abusing a student, you're not going to get fired. So if one day you let a student be on their phone for 10 minutes as a reward for something, who is it hurt? You know, and that goes down to um, a quote that I love, uh, John Abbott from his battling the soul, battling for the soul of education. Mm -hmm. He says, do students come to school to be taught or do they come to school to learn? Exactly. And I think that's something that we have to keep in mind. We need to wind this down. Yes. And I want to thank you so much for joining us. I mean, this has been wonderful seriously i'd love to have you back i would love to come back this has been great oh, oh thank you um yes 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 and so for everybody else um we have put some slides into the show notes from courtney's presentations on neurology in the classroom and classroom management and from her washington association of learning alternatives uh presentations and a few other things um, to the Huberman podcast as well. And for the Ruby Payne book, um, that is down there. And we hope that you will do that. And her contact information will also be there in case you're interested in contacting her for um, various reasons to learn more. So she's a wealth of information, as you can tell. So thank you. And... Thank you to all of our listeners uh we will see you next week thank you bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.